Thank you, Bill, for those generous remarks. Uh, Bill and I have been trading, making nice remarks about each other <laughs> for years now. <laughs> and um, next time is my turn, okay? Can't, couldn't help but think, speaking of testifying on the Hill and uh, Bill alluded to my uh, you know, cleverness or something or other, and, and I recalled instantly a case when I was then administrative EPA, <clears throat> and I was testifying before my our appropriations subcommittee, then chaired by Jamie Whitten of Mississippi, uh, later chairman of the full committee, and he was looking at some notes and that his staff obviously had given him and uh, asking me some tough questions. And one was, um, Mr. Administrator, I, I will keep up on that line. Uh, it says here, two of your staff spent X dollars going to a meeting in Tbilisi. How do you explain that? He said, I don't even know where Tbilisi is. <laughs> I said, well, Mr. Chairman, Tbilisi is in Georgia. <laughs> oh, oh, all right. Well, you can't do that, actually, for four years. <laughs> there were some serious moments as well. It's an honor, indeed, to make these opening remarks of this inaugural conference of the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions. And it's, I'd say, a, an honor a somewhat humbling experience to uh, have an audience as prestigious as this one is. And I doubt very much that there is a single person in this room who doesn't know a lot more about what's going on today in the environment than I do. And that's just a fact of fact of life as far as I'm concerned. Since I'm no longer really actively engaged, well, off and on you do get engaged, but uh, I'm not constantly engaged environmental, on the environmental front. Much of what I have to say here will draw on uh, events of the past. Of course, my memory isn't worth a hell of a lot either. Uh, I recently gave my so-called papers to the Library of Congress. Well, this represented some 50 archive boxes of stuff. And uh, so now when somebody asks me about some event of the past, I'm apt to say, Oh, I'm so sorry. 
the Library of Congress now has custody of my memory. <laughs> and uh, actually, I haven't tried that yet, but it's not, it doesn't sound bad. <laughs> Let me offer at the outset uh, my congratulations to Pete and Jenny Nicholas for their generosity and also their leadership in establishing this institute. And I congratulate them in particular on their insightful insistence. Now, how's that for a phrase? In insightful insistence that this institution be dedicated to finding solutions. What a radical idea. Yeah. But radical or not, it's an idea whose time has come, and then some. I applaud the focus of this institution on the environment. To me, the single most critical challenge humanity faces is the need to promote and protect a global environment that will nurture and sustain a broad array of life on the planet, of course, including our own. The environmental cause is as fundamental as life itself. Now, if you're thinking that this guy train is getting a little carried away with purple uh, phrases, I assure you that that last line is not original with me. It was none other than Richard Nixon in his first environmental message to the Congress in 1970 who declared the environmental cause is as fundamental as life itself. And of course, he was totally correct. And I think as has been suggested here by those who have spoken before me, and that's so obviously true. Dedication to the environment is not being dedicated to a single issue, narrow issue. The environmental issue is made up of economics, and agricultural policy, and public health, energy policy, transportation, uh, forestry, you, marine, fisheries, you name it, the climate, uh, about everything you can think of. It's pretty much an all-embracing concern. Nixon had signed the National Environmental Policy Act on January 1, 1970. And he made a point of the fact that this was his first official act of the decade of the 70s. And then his State of the Union message that followed a few days later to the Congress. The largest single portion of that message was devoted to the environment. And he didn't just talk in that message about nuts and bolts of uh, air and water pollution, although there was plenty of that but also about the quality of life, the need for a national growth policy, and 
broad considerations such as those. As you know, an outpouring of legislative and administrative measures dealing with the environment followed that message. One included the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency toward the end of 1970. And 1971 saw a repeat of this sort of performance with such new initiatives as the Toxic Substances Control Act, uh, the World Heritage Program, which Bill has alluded to. Now the principal, I think it's the principal program of UNESCO, and the proposed National Land Use Policy Act, a somewhat surprising proposal for a conservative Republican administration. The land use legislation passed the Senate twice, but finally bogged down in the House where conservative Republicans were not particularly happy with it. Nixon himself became increasingly uncomfortable with the land use proposal. Reportedly, as he was reading his 1972 environmental message prior to sending it to the Congress, when he had read the land use policy language, he turned to whoever was with him at the time and said, who is the son of a bitch who wrote this stuff for me? <laughs> well, I was probably the one technically responsible for the <laughs> language of the message, but I suspect that the SLB who actually wrote the words was no, no, none other than the gentleman who just introduced me. <laughs> namely the distinguished chairman of the advisory board of this institute, the Honorable William K. Riley. Yeah. I warned Bill this morning that this was going to, he would be, uh, never mind. Now, my purpose here is not to give an ancient history course, but rather to highlight some contrasts with our present situation. Those contrasts are particularly relevant, I believe, to our ability to develop solutions, solutions that can be adopted and implemented. Starting at the top, Nixon's interest in the environment was, my light, purely political. He read the polls and he knew that environmental protection was high on the public agenda. He also knew, or was pretty sure, that Senator Ed Muskie, uh, who was the principal Democratic spokesman for the environment, would be, could be an opponent of his in the next presidential election and he wanted to neutralize the Muskie factor. He wanted, as a result, he wanted the environmental issue dealt with comprehensively, but he made absolutely clear that he did not want personally to be involved with it. One of the few things he didn't really want to get into, he said.
Now, if you are charged with putting the program together, what better mandate could you possibly have had? <laughs> Today, President George W. Bush also appears to have no personal interest in the environmental, in the environment. But further, he apparently does not see it as an important political issue. The White House political strategy today is clearly designed to appeal to other constituencies. As a result, the Bush administration has shown little or no interest in developing a positive environmental agenda. To the contrary, its positions have generally been negative in that regard, including its refusal to support international climate initiatives or even engage in discussions of the problem. Its failure to address auto fuel economy in any meaningful way and generally the failure to make any effort to reduce U.S. energy demands. In the latter regard, the administration has given high priority to opening the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas development, while at the same time giving no priority to reducing energy demand. Such an energy policy, in my opinion, is not balanced, it's not conservative, it makes no economic sense in the long term, and it makes no meaningful reduction in U.S. dependence on foreign oil. At the same time, the management of our national parks, our wildlife refuges, our national forests, and other public lands is woefully underfunded. EPA, particularly in the enforcement area, is underfunded. Given our current tax policies and enormous deficit, that situation is likely only to get worse. Indeed, new federal commitments in the wake of Hurricane Katrina will apparently be met either by new borrowing or further cuts in existing programs. The administration from the president on down has not hesitated to cast doubt on the validity of scientific findings when those findings support a public policy with which they disagree. As in the case of global warming, embryonic stem cell research, and a number of other areas. I do not recall any similar such case when I was EPA administrator under Presidents Nixon and Ford, nor do I recall a single instance of the White House trying to tell me how to make a regulatory decision. One important result of that situation, I like to think, is that the agency enjoyed reasonable credibility, public confidence, and public trust vital attributes if it is to carry out its mandate effectively. And that brings up an important contrast with the current situation. It is my strong impression that the White House today does not tolerate any divergence of views within the administration. Everyone speaks with one voice, if indeed they speak at all. You seldom hear or read of any official expressing an independent opinion on almost any subject. It's a very tightly controlled, top-down, authoritarian regime. Of course, you don't want a government where there appears to be no clear 
administration policy, where everyone seems to be riding off in all directions. But there surely is a middle ground, a political climate that fosters open discussion and the development of fresh ideas and even some diversity of views will build better policies and a stronger government in every respect, while the avoidance of such openness tends to reflect uncertainty, lack of self-confidence, and even fear of having administration policies subject to public scrutiny. Another somewhat related point of contrast between today and the situation that existed in the early 70s is the the legislative and executive branches were controlled by different parties in those years. Environmental legislation typically passed the Congress with broad bipartisan majorities. And this is, Bill also is familiar with this the same situation. Indeed, my work with the responsible committees in developing legislation was always on a very positive bipartisan basis. A lot was accomplished in the public interest under those circumstances. And I think most of this bipartisanship ended with the so-called Gingrich Revolution in 1994. The current situation was well described by our own Nicholas School Dean, Bill Schlesinger, when he said, and they basically politicized the issue so that both sides now go to the table with their hard guns. And they beat on each other for a while, and there's never agreement, so nothing happens. And CO2 continues to rise. Now, of course, Bill was talking there about global warming testimony, but his description strikes me as being pretty valid across the board. By the way, that statement that I just quoted is found in a new book by a, a Washington journalist, Chris Mooney, called The Republican War on Science. Despite a fairly negative review uh, this past Sunday in the Washington Post, I recommend the book for your perusal. It's a real eye-opener. Um, perhaps I'm prejudiced because Mooney says some nice things about me in the book. And uh, I, I, so I've got perhaps a conflict of interest here in promoting it. Another important difference, in my opinion, in the situation today and that 30 years ago lies in public attitudes toward environmental issues. I have a very strong sense that the public is far less concerned today over environmental issues. There's no environmental ferment on the nation's campuses. Uh, in our day, they were burying automobiles at Ann Arbor and things of this kind. I'm not sure that was all that constructive, but uh, it still excited the public about the issue. I hear few cries of outrage over the continued failure to adequately control emissions from old coal-fired power plants or over numerous other environmental issues. 
by the way, these old fired, old coal-fired power plants, they were old coal-fired power plants in 1970, and they're still there. <laughs> and uh, in any event, I think there is a certain amount of public complacency because the U.S. has, in fact, done a pretty good job over the years in dealing with the most egregious environmental problems. Moreover, with neither the administration nor the Congress providing leadership in the area, the environment simply does not get much public attention. This is a problem this institute will need to confront as it seeks solutions to environmental policy issues. When public concern wanes, political interest tends to disappear, because that's the obvious. In important areas, such as the emissions, which I've mentioned from old coal-fired power plants, particularly mercury emissions, I'm a firm believer myself in the old-fashioned command and control approach to cleaning them up. To make such approaches work, EPA will need strong enforcement with an adequate budget. With respect to mercury, I've always understood that the principal health problem was with respect to fetuses uh, and young children. And that may still be true, but I have recently heard, just I think a couple of days ago, that new research in Europe strongly suggests that uh, increased levels of mercury exposure uh, for older men, and I was really quite sensitive to this, but I, <laughs> uh, correlates directly with a quite significant rise in the incidence of heart disease within that group. Likewise, I understand that new evidence suggests that the current level, safe levels, I guess you might call them, of um, exposure for pregnant women should be much lower than they presently are. In other areas, such as addressing non-point sources of pollution, including runoff from farmlands or implementing the Endangered Species Act in waterways and on private lands, there is a need for developing collaborative approaches. And it will be vital in that regard to engage as many constituencies as possible in an open, cooperative, consultative process. Here it seems to me that the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions can and should play a very active and positive role. There is a lot of room today for cooperative solutions, for the use of market mechanisms such as cap and trade where appropriate, for the continued engagement of NGOs who have played such an important role in this country in developing environmental initiatives and in monitoring performance. And there are some positive signs out there. Earlier this month, for example, a White House conference on comparative conservation was held in St. Louis. Uh, 
I, were any, is anybody here there at that meeting? I'm quite surprised. The conference brought together, I'm told, over a thousand participants who discussed the need, the opportunities, and their experience with actual efforts to reach cooperative solutions, such as that underway with respect to salmon management and conservation in Puget Sound. Bill Ruckelshaus, first and fifth EPA administrator, has been a key participant in that particular effort. And in this regard, I salute this administration's initiative. I hasten to add that cooperative private action is not a substitute for firm government regulation and enforcement. Indeed, without the reality of the latter, cooperative initiatives are apt to evaporate. Changing subjects, and this is quite a change, I have long been interested in the role of religious groups in the environmental field. I've been puzzled, to put it mildly, by the general lack of interest in environmental issues on the part of such groups. And some years ago, in 1990, I addressed, a, uh, addressed the general subject in a speech entitled, Caring for Creation, given to a North American Conference on Religion and Ecology in Washington. Since then, there have been some encouraging signs of more interest in the environment on the part of religious groups. Today, given the very active role of conservative Christians in particular in the political arena, I would urge that we develop and sustain a positive dialogue on environmental issues such as global warming with this important segment of the American public. Related to this, I believe that environmental protection policies necessarily have a strong ethical component which needs to be better understood and communicated. At this point, I think I have talked long enough. There is much else that I could touch on. For example, there is a need, and Bill mentioned this in his opening remarks, there is a strong need to reinvigorate the U.S. role in international environmental affairs. We once were the unquestioned world leader in that regard. Such a role is important, not only to achieving solutions to environmental problems, but also in helping build positive international relationships generally. I'm afraid that some of my remarks may have seemed overly political. They really were not intended to be that way. But if we ought to seek and find solutions, we must be realistic about the political world in which we find, find ourselves. And finally, the Institute should never forget that it works on the cutting edge of the most critical set of issues that face the world. Thank you very much. Thank you.